Well, thank you for your welcome. Great to be back here again tonight. And uh, I'm not sure how deep it's going to get tonight, but uh, at least we're looking at the Old Testament, which is great. You know, we get uh, fed up at Belmont and slightly alarmed sometimes at the number of visitors we get coming from other churches. Say, oh, you teach from the Old Testament. We only ever do the New Testament. That's crazy because the Old Testament is a foundation on which the New Testament's built. So it's good to go back to this stuff. And you're brave people going through numbers, but hey, well done. My admiration is all the more increased. So we're going to read tonight from Numbers chapter 23. And we've got the first 26 verses of that uh, to, to, to look at. Now, this is kind of in the midst of a story. So rather than reading it straight away, um, okay, right, fine. <laughs> Sorry, Kev. You can't be psychic. It's not my fault. But uh, yeah, if we can just leave that on for a moment, uh, we'll, we'll read. This is going to be tricky. We're going to read a few verses at a time as we go down through it, but not yet. We'll look back at the, the background of this story, just in case you haven't heard the start of the story. If you weren't here, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and uh, um, you, it, it always helps to put things clearly. This is the story of the Israelites moving through the desert and coming to the promised land. They're right on the borders now. They've come most of the route that you see there. You see how it goes across from Egypt, across the Red Sea, right down to Mount Sinai where uh, God gave Moses the law and then up to Ezion Geber and then things go slightly wrong <laughs> because they rebel against God and they go on a wander for about 40 years till one generation has died out and a new generation has come. And they start going on up again and uh, we're almost up there now. Uh, they've reached the top. There's that little kink there which I'll explain in a moment. Uh, and they've almost reached the territory of Moab. And uh, this is where the story is, is based. The king of Moab is getting very worried indeed. His name is Balak, and uh, when the Israelites left Egypt, he must have been a very young boy, if in fact he was actually born at that point. So I don't know how much of the story he knows, but he knows that a massive tribe is marching through the desert and they're getting bigger and bigger all the time as you have more and more babies and uh, this is a massive nation that's coming into his territory. What's he going to do about it? They don't want to stop there. They want to move on from there but uh, he thinks that this is going to upset the whole balance of power and so he's got to do something. Actually, at first, they came up uh, on the, the left-hand side of the Dead Sea as you can see there. They want to get over to the right-hand side and they wanted to go through the territory of Edom and the Edomites wouldn't let them go. And uh, I think you, you had that story a few weeks ago. So they had to go down to the Gulf of Aqaba, right down and round Edom, and then up into Moab. So their only way up lay through the land of Moab. And Balak was quite concerned about that. Just to uh, put some places on the map for you, this is where uh, it says, this is where you were last time. Because I thought that the last talk you had on this was in chapter 20. But apparently, I'm wrong. I'm just going by the recordings on your website. But... Um, uh, I obviously missed something because at Kadesh Barnea, that was the story um, that uh, uh, was dealt with a, a few weeks ago. Um, oh, I can't remember who did it. But anyway, from there, the Israelites were heading towards Jericho. And Jericho was the first major stronghold that you had to conquer if you were going to take the promised land. It was the big one. They couldn't go up the left-hand side. They had to go to the right. So as I mentioned, they, they tried to get across through the territory of Edom. Even before there, King Arad, who was the king of the Canaanites, who lived on the west coast a little bit further up, decided this had to be stopped. And so he came down to slaughter them and ended up slaughtered himself. In a place called Hormah, the Israelites won a major victory. All of the other kings started looking at one another and getting very, very worried indeed. So they, they went across, uh, past the territory of Edom, down and up again, through uh, Moab, and then Sihon, 
one of the biggest kings in the area had a go at them as well. Uh, and his capital city called Heshbon, you can probably see at the top of the map there, uh, the Israelites overran. They just took it over completely. And nobody in that area could believe it. Sihon defeated by this bunch of ex-slaves who've just come out of the desert. And Balak is starting to get convinced there is something supernatural going on here. The Israelites are not just doing this because they're great warriors or military strategists or they have you know, new weapons that nobody else has thought of. There is some supernatural power behind all of this. And uh, that in increases all the more when the other great king of the area called Og comes out to fight them as well. And uh, he's miles out of his own territory, but he gets defeated as well. And Og and Sihon are just not a threat any longer. And so, uh, as uh, you probably heard last time, that this, uh, this, this, uh, from chapter 22, uh, Balak gets in touch with somebody he's heard about, a prophet called Balaam. We're not dead sure where Balaam lives, but it's a long, long way away from Moab anyway. But he gets on, on, on to him because he has heard that Balaam has a hotline to the true God. Now, this true God, you need to understand a little bit as well. Because one of the words that's Abraham and uh, Jacob and Isaac and all of the fathers used for God was Elohim. And that name for the true God, El for short, was used all through the Near East. But there was another name for God, which God had given to Moses way back at Sinai. And it was a name that wasn't used at all by the other tribes around here. It was a name Yahweh. I am who I am. And that was a name of, that was God's personal name. That was the name that you used when you knew him well. Um, uh, it was the name that talked about closeness and dependability and reliability. And none of the tribes around this area knew anything about the fact that God's real nature was Yahweh. They all knew there was some kind of great God out there who was king of all the other gods, if there were any other gods. Certainly he was in charge of all the supernatural agencies in the world. Most of them thought El had a wife as well. And I'm not sure that Balaam uh, made that mistake, but uh, certainly El was worshipped all over the place. Now, what does God do in a situation like that, where most people just don't know who he is? Well, sometimes he can work through the pagan practices and the evil things that, other, that, that, that people are doing to get his message through anyway. I mean, do you remember that story at the end of 1 Samuel 28, where King Saul who's getting absolutely desperate because he knows that God is going to take the kingdom away from him, does a thing that no Israelite ever should do. He goes and consults a medium and asks the medium to bring up the spirit of Samuel for him. I've had people say to me, well, there you are, you see, that's spiritualism in the Bible. That means it's all right to go and uh, play about with a Ouija board and communicate with uh, mediums and things like that and see if you can contact your dead granny and ask her where she left her will. <laughs> Not quite. No, that's not right. Read that story carefully and you'll see what's going on. Because she does her usual work, the medium. She goes into a trance and she, she tries to call up the spirit. And then Samuel appears. And revealingly, at that point, the medium gives a start of surprise. Because that's not what normally happens when she does this kind of stuff. And she sees immediately, you're not just some Johnny off the street. You're King Saul, aren't you? Why does she realize that? Because something real has happened, which normally was jiggery-pokery and fakery, <laughs> to use a technical term. And uh, uh, she, she's so surprised because God is speaking through this technique that she's got, which is something that no Israelite was allowed to touch. It was an abomination. It was wrong. And God was using that. He wants to speak to Samuel. Okay, on this one occasion only, 
We'll bring back Samuel, and Samuel will tell him something he will never, ever forget. So God sometimes uses those means. And Balaam was somebody who seems to have had that kind of communication, if you like, uh, from God. Um, And so he had a reputation for uh, sorting things out by the power of God. Although I don't think it was always God he was speaking to. And I don't think he had as close a relationship with God as, you know, just reading the story might suggest. I'll tell you why in a moment. But anyway, he was called for, and he met uh, uh, Balak at a place uh, near what's present-day uh, Medaba. And uh, at there, he stood on a mountain and looked down on all the tents of Israel and started to, to, uh, to um, do his work. We'll see what that was in a moment. Now, the last installment of the story, you might remember, if you, didn't, if you weren't here for it, uh, Balak's getting worried. This is the, the previous chapter. He contacts Balaam, and Balaam says no. Why? Because somehow God gave him a message that he wasn't to go. Don't know how that works. I don't know what connection Balaam had with God. Uh, but El, the great high God, said to him, no, you're not going. And so the messengers go back to Balak all the way. Remember, he lived a long, long way away, and say he won't come. And so Balak sends his top people, a bunch of people who are even more dignified than the first lot who went. I'll send in the top hierarchy and make sure this happens. You know, we want the queen to stop parliament. It's not good enough to send Jacob Rees-Mogg. We'll have to send Boris himself, that kind of thing. And so the the people were sent uh, to to deal with Balak and also to make big promises to him. We'll make you so rich. We'll make you so wealthy. And Balak said, well, I can't do anything that God doesn't tell me to do. And God says, yes, this time. But he limits Balaam. He says, you must not say anything except what I tell you to say. And then you've got the whole story of the donkey, which is what that donkey's doing there. Balak gets on his donkey, starts to come across, and the donkey has a word with him. (laughs) You might remember. The donkey's trying to, 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 to travel down the road, and he sees in front of him somebody with a shining sword. And Balaam can't see it at all. And so three times the donkey tries to go further and can't and stops and lies down and crushes Balaam's foot against a wall, all sorts of stuff. And Balaam gets so annoyed with the donkey, oh, if I had a sword, I'd chop your ears off. Uh, something like that. That's my own version. And uh, uh, the, the, the donkey speaks back and says, hey, why, why would you do that to me? Have I ever let you down before? And Balaam says, you've never said a word before either. What's going on here? <laughs> and uh, suddenly he begins to realize he's in the presence of somebody supernatural. Whoa, the donkey realized more than I did. And God's saying to him, look, This is what I do. I can reveal myself to donkeys rather than humans if I want. So don't think you think you're anything special. And I can make anything speak in my name, even a donkey. So don't think that you can say whatever you like. You're going, but you've got to say exactly what you're told. And so having been warned that way, uh, Balaam goes on, meets Balak, and then they get to work. Okay, let's read some verses finally, shall we, from chapter 23. Here's chapter 23 in verse 1. Balaam said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam said, and the two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, you stay here beside your offering while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me. Whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. Then he went off to a barren height. So the first thing that happens in chapter 23 then is that Balak offers an expensive sacrifice. Seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. That would have cost an awful lot of money. And yes, animals were injured in the making of this program. Lots of blood all over the place. And it sounds very scriptural. Sounds like one of those things you'd read about in the book of Leviticus, doesn't it? Except it's not. (laughs) 
Balaam is making this up as he goes along. God kind of likes bulls, doesn't he? He likes rams. I don't know why he wants all the blood around the place, but hey, let's sacrifice a few. How many shall we have? Well, let's say, uh, oh, seven. Seven is the perfect number. So it's, it's got mystical significance. So God will be pleased with this. That's what we'll do. And so he makes Balak perform this very expensive sacrifice, and then uh, he goes off to talk to the Lord. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me, he says. Now, I don't know what happens. It sounds, when you read it, as if uh, God is kind of coming up to Balaam as he stands on his barren height and saying, hey, Balaam, here's the message. I don't think it's quite like that. Certainly, Balaam has a message to deliver when he gets back, but he doesn't seem to know what it is until it comes out, and he thinks, did I just say that? So, there's something funny going on here, and if you turn to the start of chapter 24, the next bit, which is not my territory at all, somebody else has got to do with that, it says, now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face towards the desert. In the times that you read about in chapter 23, he's going off onto his barren height and trying to conjure up God, or whatever it was he was doing. And so there's some sorcery going on here. There's something weird and magical. He's trying to evoke the spirits and bring God to himself, or something like that. And once he, he's convinced he's got this message, he just staggers back to Balak and delivers it. It's not like a real communication with God. It's more like doing something a sorcerer would do. And that's why in chapter 24, he drops that whole thing. And then for the first time, it says, the spirit of God came upon him. And God spoke through Balaam directly. That's very, very different. But we're not there yet. That's the next installment, so don't miss it. But uh, for tonight, um, uh, God gives Balaam something to say anyway. So let's read on here. Uh, God met with him, and Balaam said, I prepared seven altars, and on each altar I have offered a bull and a ram. Well, big deal. Um, that wasn't something God had asked for in the first place. But the Lord put a message in Balaam's mouth and said, Go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went back to him and uh, found him standing behind his, beside his offering with all the princes of Moab. So there's King Balak standing by the offering. He's got to be next to it, otherwise God won't see that it's his offering and won't bless him as a result. It's all very superstitious. And then Balaam uttered his oracle. And to everybody's surprise, what he says is not the curse that Balak was expecting, but a blessing on Israel instead. So let's read those verses. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them. He's talking about the Israelites here. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? What he's saying is there are an awful lot of them. <laughs> Let me die the death of the righteous and may my end be like theirs. And so he's saying, you know, I, w I just wish I could live the same life as the Israelites and die in the same right with God way that they're going to die. And Balak's thinking, this is a funny kind of a curse. I've never heard anybody curse like this before. So verse 11, Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And Balaam only answers very weakly, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So that wasn't a very successful experiment. And you might have thought that Balak would give up at this point and realize that he was up against something he just couldn't control. But no, he was in too deep. And so the next thing that happens is Balak changes the geography. He takes him somewhere else. 
because he's thinking in his head, maybe Balaam can't curse the people of Israel because he sees how many of them there are. And maybe he's kind of scared and so, oh, bless you all, bless you all, just don't hurt me. Maybe it's something like that. And maybe if you take him somewhere where he can only see a part of them, then he can focus his mind and as he goes into a frenzy and rolls his eyes and you know, spittle comes out of his mouth or whatever it was, uh, he'll give the right message this time. He'll curse them. He just needs to focus on the job. So then Balak said to him, verse 13, come with me to another place where you can see them. You'll see, not, you'll see only a part, but not all of them. And from there, curse them from, for me. So he took him to the field of Zophim on the top of Pisgah. And there, oh, he dips into his pocket again and more offerings and more sacrifices. Seven altars, a bull and a ram on each altar. Same recipe, but uh, same, uh, twice the expense. Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I meet with him over there. So he goes off and does the meeting with God bit again. And the Lord met with Balaam and put a message in his mouth. Same phrase as before. Again, it seems to be a message that Balaam did not know the content of, did not understand until he actually stood up and gave it out. So uh, God says, go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went to him and found him standing beside his offering with the princes of Moab, who must have been getting a bit fed up with standing around uh, sacrifices that they were doing. Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? And then he uttered his oracle. And then here comes number two, and we find that Balak is blessing Israel once again. And Balaam is blessing Israel once again. Arise, Balak, and listen, verse 18. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. And Balak's thinking, oh dear, what a waste of money, not to mention rams and bulls and all sorts of other things. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. You see, what that really means is the Lord their God is with them and all of his royal presence. It's as if they've got a royal stamp on them as bunch. They're not just another tribe out of the desert. They're not just a bunch of escaped laborers from the land of Egypt. They are people who have a royalty, a dignity around them. And you can't take that away from them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest till he devours his prey and drinks the blood of his victims. And Balak, who's just about reaching the end of his patience here, says, Then Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Just keep your mouth shut, will you, man? And Balaam answered, Did I not tell you I must do whatever the Lord says? <laughs> and so, despite himself, despite the fact he'd like all the money that Balak's offering, he's got to do what God says. And what God is saying is, you can't curse these people. I've made promises to them that I'm going to keep, and I am not going to change them just because of a bit of magic manipulation by you. And uh, this is where our passage tonight ends, but you'll see if you just scan your eye on, on, on beyond that point, you, another seven bulls and another seven rams are for the chop because <laughs> Balak's going to have one more chance and he changes the recipe a little bit uh, again and uh, uh, tries one more time. And that equally does not work, but you'll get to that one next time. I just want to look at this story for a few minutes and, and focus on three things, because I think there are three things that are important in this story. The first one is what Balak got wrong. Balak had a completely wrong view of the God of the Bible. 
And it's a view that many people have shared down through the ages and still have today. You'll find it out there in painting all over the place. And Balak was wildly wrong with his understanding of God. He knew there was a God. He knew that uh, Balaam sometimes got messages from this God. And he thought somehow he could make this God work for him. But he had not the faintest idea about how that God thought or worked or planned. Second, there was what Balaam got wrong. <laughs> Balaam knew a little bit more than Balak did. He knew he mustn't say anything other than what God gave him to say. He knew that uh, from the donkey incident that uh, uh, God can do anything and he wasn't dependent on Balaam. So it wasn't Balaam's superpowers that were going to do this. It was God speaking through him if God chose to do that. But Balaam was quite wrong about a lot of things about God. And we'll have a look at that one too. And the third thing is, what did God actually say? What do you get out of those two messages that uh, Balaam did have to give to Israel? Well, we'll look at that in a moment. Let's look at the first one. What did Balak get wrong? I think the first thing with, with, with Balak was that he thought God was somebody you could manipulate. And lots of people think the supernatural world works like that. That's the whole basis of witchcraft, of magic, of black magic, of all kinds of things like that. Just do it right. Do, do things according to a certain recipe and the results must follow. And uh, back at the start of the 20th century, there was a great revival of magic in Paris and in London. And all sorts of people got involved in it because they became convinced <coughs> that in old books from many centuries before, there were recipes, if you like. There were techniques that you could adapt and you could use that would change the world around you. You could do stuff. And you'll still find plenty of people today who are still in that tradition. I've talked to witches um, who really believe that they can, they, they can do things to people that, that they're nasty. I had one who said to me, you better watch out because uh, last week in Sussex, um, uh, a man fell off a ladder when I was thinking evil thoughts about him. It just happens. And uh, she said, I have powers I can't control, but I, I know how to make it work. If, if you oppose me, I'm going to do something to you. And sometimes people think they can make this thing work uh, by techniques, if you learn enough spells, magical formulae, things like that, then you can manipulate the supernatural and it must do what you want. God is not like that. You can't tell God what to do. He's the creator of the universe. He can do anything he wants. And you cannot make him do things that, uh, that uh, he has not himself already chosen to do. You'll find even in the Christian church you get people like that sometimes. There are lots of people who uh, claim to be healers uh, or claim to be able to make you wealthy. If you will just do something their way, they'll send you through the post a little prayer mat that you have to hold in your hand as you pray, and it will give you as prayers extra power. There's one evangelist who's particularly sort of brazen about this that I, I saw, um, uh, who puts a certain pattern on your computer screen. He said, just put your hand on the screen, pray in faith, and then send me a check for $1,000. <laughs> and you'll get 10,000 back. Always works, never fails. Here are lots of letters from people that have got the $10,000. It doesn't work like that. You can't say it always works and it never fails where God's concerned because God isn't some kind of machine. He's not a supernatural ATM. He's somebody who's got a mind and a will and a purpose of his own. And unless God has chosen to do it, you can't manipulate him into it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is he thought God could be bought. <laughs> This, this was, say, uh, Balaam's first gambit, wasn't it, when he went back to God? Look what Balak's done for you. 
Seven bulls, seven rams. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Fantastic sacrifice. Seven altars. Not just one altar, but seven of them. That's pretty good, isn't it? You've got to do something for him. You're indebted to him now because he's made all of these costly sacrifices. And God just cuts through all of that and isn't impressed at all. Can God be bought off? People try to do that sometimes. They think, if I just do this, God will be more pleased with me. If I can give up that bad habit, if I can work really hard, if I can pay my debts, then God is going to be pleased with me. <laughs> well, you can't buy God off. This is the church uh, in the village where I was born in, in Scotland. It's a great uh, place. It's uh, built right by the, the sea, as you can see. And when there's a storm whipped up, which is quite often on that, the coast of Fife there, um, the spray dashes against the side of the church. It's a very dramatic place. And it's actually the third oldest church in Scotland. Wonderful, atmospheric place to be. And... Uh, what always saddens me is the story of the way it was built. <laughs> because it was built by King David, the King of Scotland at one stage. Not that King David who came along <laughs> time after. But King David, who was a very pious man, apparently, was sailing in a ship down the Firth of Forth when one of those sudden storms uh, sprung up. And he thought he was going to die. And uh, he, just, he just prayed desperately, Oh God, if you save my life, I will build you a church at the spot where we come to land. And, of course, the ship was driven onto the shore at St. Monin's. And they go, right, okay, I suppose I've got to build this place now because I, I bought it. You know, I bought it. God took the church and he answered my prayer. That's not the way God works. You can't pay God off. Anything you get from him is a gift of grace. And grace means something you haven't deserved, you haven't paid for, you can't possibly expect. God doesn't do deals with human beings. And that's what Balaam was trying to do. We'll give you all this stuff if you'll just do something for us. God is not controlled like that. You can't buy God. And there's a third mistake that Balak made. He thought God could be manipulated. He thought God could be bought. And third, really, when you get down to it, he wasn't interested in God at all. <laughs> because what you see in those messages that God is sending through to him is a God who's very interesting indeed. A God who will take one people and look after them uh, right through the desert, right through to the promised land, will make them his delight, will get close to them. And that's a, an attractive picture of God, if Balak stopped to think about it for a minute. But he's not interested in the God that he's, he's, he's approaching here. He just wants that God to do what he wants and then clear off out of the way. And you often find, sadly, that's the way that people approach God. You want him to do something for them, but then once he's done it, that's the end of the encounter. I'm sometimes called in, not very often, I don't want to sound like the exorcist here or whatever, but I'm sometimes called in to houses where there is something funny going on. You know, there are, there are strange noises uh, at night, there are footsteps above your head when you know you're the only person in the house, that kind of thing. Uh, cold winds blowing down the, the chimney in the, the middle of August and uh, cold patches that animals won't go near, all sorts of stuff like that. And when you get that sort of stuff in a house, and there's some kind of supernatural involvement going on, it usually scares people stiff. What I've always found is that the one thing that can shift it is prayer. <laughs> now, I don't know why that is, except, of course, that it's a way of channeling the power of God and faith in, in, in God into that situation. But it works. And uh, you, you, you don't feel, when you're doing that, as if you've got any kind of... Oops, oh, uh, no signal. That's interesting. That's... Mm. Oh, right, okay, I think that means we need to start it again. It's, I think this has just got itself out there. Oh, oops, uh, Balak, come on back, Balak. There we are. 
always forgiven. There's a man. Good. And uh, uh, sometimes people are absolutely scared stiff when that kind of thing's going on with them. But prayer can shift it. You don't feel it's your power at all. It's a power that's working through you. I remember one house in, in, uh, in uh, Exeter in a place called Bohe Road where um, I was called in by a family who weren't Christians at all. Uh, they were absolutely petrified about what was happening to them and had been happening for weeks. And I remember we worked out that the whole thing in the house was centered over um, an old staircase leading down under the house into the basement where the, something had been cemented, an old chest with papers in it, had been cemented into the steps. It sounds like a B-movie, doesn't it? But this is actually true. And uh, uh, I said, okay, let's just go into the kitchen, stand over the spot where it is, and pray about it. They said, well, why shouldn't we dig it out? I said, oh, don't do that. You'll be stirring up even more. So we just went into the kitchen, stood in a circle, and prayed. And I've never felt so powerless in my life. I really haven't. Often when you're dealing with this sort of thing, that's one of the things that the enemy does to you. It just makes you feel absolutely insignificant and powerless. And I remember praying and thinking, this is not working. There's nothing happening here. And actually prolonging the prayer by about half a minute because I thought, come on, come on, pray harder, pray harder. In the end, I ran out of things to say and just said, amen. And he said, amen. And immediately, there was a noise at the back door, scratching noise. And the woman went rigid and said, it's the dog. I said, yeah, the dog wants to come into the kitchen. Great, so what? She said, you don't understand. The dog hasn't been near the kitchen in the last six months. He's been too scared to come in. If he wants to come in, that means you've shifted it. Oh, all right. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, you would think with a demonstration of God's power like that in action that they'd be in church the next Sunday. <laughs> You'd think they'd want to find out who, who he was, this, this God who controlled circumstances like that. And could just, they just didn't want to touch it. And sadly, I found that's the case with most people whom I've had to help in that kind of a way. They want the problem shifted, but they don't want anything to do with the God who's given them the help. And so I think this is what's going on here. Balak wants God to shift a problem for him, but he's not really interested in getting to know him, in having anything to do with him, in submitting his life to his control. All of that stuff is something he just doesn't want. God is just a convenience to be used and then forgotten where he's concerned. So what did, uh, oh yeah, yeah, this is a famous old uh, medieval prayer in English, which I think just sums up that attitude, doesn't it? God bless me and my wife, my son John and his wife. We four, no more. <laughs> That's the attitude that says, God, shift my problem. I'm focused on my circumstances. I don't care what you do with the rest of the world. I don't care what you're all about. Just bless me. That attitude is never going to get much out of God. How about Balaam then? Let's look at that. What did Balaam get wrong? Well, I think the first thing is that Balaam went with wrong motives. I mean, I don't uh, know what was said about uh, the previous chapter, but uh, it seems to me that it's a very confusing uh, message that God gives him to start with. Because remember, when Balak's messengers come, first of all, he says, don't go. And then when the super messengers come, you know, Boris instead of Jacob, um, God says, go. And then Balak goes on his donkey. And God stops him and makes the donkey talk because God is annoyed with him. What's going on? Does God want him to go or does God not want him to go? I think the answer is God wants him to go, but he wants him to go with the right motives. And he sees Balaam going along the road and his donkey thinking, rich, rich, I'm going to be rich. Oh, Balak's going to give me so much money. Oh, this God business is very lucrative. And so God has to make sure that Balak is, Balaam is going to do exactly what he says and nothing else. I think that's why all of those things happen in chapter 22. So Balaam was somebody who did things for profit. You read about that in the New Testament, don't you, where Balaam's name comes up again. 
He was more interested in selling his gift than in doing anything that served God. So he was going there with completely wrong motives to start with. Second, he thought that God might change. Because after that first experience where God made him bless Israel instead of curse, he should have said to Balak, well, that's it. You know, the show's over. It's all off. Because God has clearly said what he thinks. But then Balak says, well, come over here where you can't see quite so many tents and we'll have a, another try. Bring me seven more bulls, you know. And uh, Balaam goes along with it. He should have said, no, that's ridiculous. God doesn't change. God doesn't alter. And so God gives him that message. Does the Lord change his mind? No, he doesn't. But Balaam's prepared to try anything with Balak that will actually give Balak the result he wants so that Balaam can go home with his check. He thought God might change. And sometimes I think people tend to think that too, that if they pray hard enough, if they do things in a certain way, God will change his mind and give them what they want. God does not behave like that. What God has said sticks. You can rely on it. That's why his name is I am who I am, because he's unchanging. He's eternal, and his will uh, never alters. And I think the third thing about Balaam was that he knew God. He knew a little bit about God. He knew when he had a message to deliver, which God had given him, in a vague pagan kind of a way, he had some kind of a connection with God, but he didn't really know him. He didn't understand why, how his heart worked. He couldn't see why he was so interested in, in Israel for a start. He had a very, very faint idea about what God was really all about. And it's possible to be like that, isn't it? To know a bit about God, to be brought up through Sunday school, to understand all sorts of things that, uh, that uh, the Bible teaches, and yet not really know God for yourself. And the important thing, if you're going to, 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 to experience the power of God in your life, is to submit to him and get to know him. And Balaam, it seems to me, was never prepared to do that. So finally, what did God actually say? <laughs> well, there are two messages, aren't there? What was in the first one? The first message was really all about Israel, trying to correct Balak's perspective on who these people were. And he said, first of all, my people are special. Balaam, Balaam says, uh, doesn't he? Uh, From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. People who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. These people are different. They're special. They've been picked out by God. They belong to him. They are not just run-of-the-mill human beings. They are special. And then the second thing that God says is, my people will prosper. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Balak, you think you're going to wipe them out in one afternoon? Come on. These people are going to spread and multiply and become bigger and bigger. And third, my people will endure. Let me die the death of the righteous and may my end be like theirs. Right through their lives, they are going to know the presence of God with them. And if I could end like them, I would be very happy indeed. They're protected by God from the start of their life right through to the end of it. And nowadays, God's Israel, as Paul puts it in the New Testament, is the church, is the Christians of the New Testament. And so those promises that are made about Israel back here in Numbers apply to us if we're Christians nowadays. We're a special people, a holy and a royal priesthood, people who've been chosen by God, who belong to him in a very special way. People who are bound to prosper, maybe not in the way that uh, uh, the evangelists with little bits of cloth tell you you can, but uh, you're bound to, to um, uh, increase and multiply. And, and, and the Bible looks forward to a day when before the throne of God, you've got people... Uh, 
as many as the grains of sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky for multitude. God is building an immense family from the four ends of the earth. And if you're a Christian, you're part of that. My people will endure right through to the end of your life. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. There is not a thing in creation that can prevent God loving you and protecting you. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is more about God. And the second message that Balaam comes back with talks about what God's like. First of all, I do not lie, and I don't change my mind. I'm not playing with you, Balaam. I say plainly what is, and I don't change that. I am the God who does not change. Um, uh, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter here. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? You can rely on God's promises. That's why Peter says in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, that you, you know one of the things that Christians should rely on to keep them going are God's special promises. Keep those promises in mind, says Peter, because they are reliable. They take you right through life and out the other side without letting you down. And even when you don't see them fulfilled straight away, you know you're in the hands of someone reliable who will not uh, break his word. He doesn't lie. He doesn't go back on anything. And God also says, I see no wrong in my people. Verse 21, no misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is, uh, is among them. Misfortune, mis misery, unrighteousness, as some versions put it. God looks at us and doesn't see that there. How can he do that? Simply because Jesus died on the cross so that when God looks at us, he sees us covered with Jesus' righteousness. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God is just as satisfied to look at him and pardon me. And so God says, I see nothing wrong with my people. They are washed clean in the blood of Christ. He also says, I'm with my people as king. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. <laughs> they belong to the king, and the king is here with us. Yet one of these days will be in his presence forever. Heaven and earth will fuse together, and the king will live in the midst of his people. But right now, he's here with us, and we are in heavenly places in Christ Jesus if we're Christians. The king is among us. His presence is here, as Graham Kendrick wrote about 30 years ago, showing my age again. And the fourth thing is he says, I've done great things for them. And uh, he says, uh, um, uh, it will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. Or uh, in the old-fashioned authorized version, what God hath wrought. And you know, when the first telegraph message was sent successfully by Samuel Morse back in 1844, those were the four words that were sent. <laughs> what God hath wrought. <laughs> He's a God of miracles. He's a God who exceeds our expectations. And God says, it's not just wireless telegraphy and stuff like that. When you look at my people, you will see me doing things in them which nobody else can. I stitch marriages back together again. I change characters and personalities. I take people in a scrap heap and put them somewhere completely different. What God hath wrought. Once upon a time, a final story, I promise, but once upon a time, I used to look after a team of Young Youth for Christ volunteers in Edinburgh, and I used to have to visit them every few weeks, and they were there working on the worst estate in Edinburgh, Craig Miller, uh, for a year, uh, and it was a tough, tough, tough job. Um, Craig Miller was an estate where, if you're a boy by 17 years old, you had a prison record, 
If you're a girl, by 17 you were probably pregnant, and by 18 you were beaten up. It was that kind of place. And there was a wee girl that used to come hang around with the team every so often. Her name was Janet, and she was a typical little girl off the streets of Craig Miller. She had a voice a bit like broken glass, and she used to follow me around. And, and, and uh, you know, she, 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 this is years ago, she thought I looked like John Lennon. <laughs> and so she'd, she'd follow me around, hey, John, get this. And imagine there's no heaven. And she'd, she'd sing her way out of tune through the John Lennon songbook. And yeah, yeah, okay, Janet, j please, just, just, okay, I'm trying to do some work here. And, you know, I'd get this broken glass voice singing John Lennon's greatest hits at me again and again and again. And uh, I remember one time I went to Craig Miller after the team had been there for about three, four months. And uh, Janet was there, and she said, hey, John, you got a new song? Oh, no, no, Janet, no, you've told me all the John Lennon ones. No, a different song. Listen, you've got to listen to this. And so uh, she started singing. And what she sang this time was so different. And the words went like this, Jesus, you're terrific. I really think you are. You took me from the dustbin. Now you treat me like a star. That was brilliant. She'd become a Christian and the change in her, what God had wrought. So Balak and Balaam were missing out on something that only the people of God knew. And these many centuries later, they can look at what they missed and marvel at it. And look at what we've got and marvel at that too. Sing the last hymn, shall we? And that's going to be, I'll just make my notes here, number 1213, O 